Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Good evening and welcome to Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrod Timbele and I hope the 24th of August is treating you well as we first approaching the end of Women's Month. Uh, the country is really reeling the aftermath of insurgency we have seen, we have never seen since the democratic dispensation. Uh, the so-called unpopular uprising has added salt to economic woes of the country that was battling adverse impact of COVID-19 and recession following the years of malfeasance under the Jacob Zuma administration. Um, this brings me to a point or a quote by Napoleon Bonaparte. It says, a leader is a dealer in hope. Uh, this begs the question, what kind of breed of politicians and business, business, and business leaders are we having? Are they inspiring hope? Is their current political system still relevant and fit for purpose? Is a hope enough uh, when prospects for salvation appears to be a distant memory for millions of South Africans who are desperate and destitute? These are, these are some of the crucial questions or issues that we all seek to address. I hope through the show we are able to shed light on, on some of the prominent South Africans who are shaping the different narratives which inspire hope and confidence through public policy as well as investment program. The reality is that the trust levels between government and general population has been broken and we need to restore, uh, you know, this kind of public confidence through rigorous dialogues to unlock some of the bottlenecks that we are currently experiencing. Having dispensed with that introduction, let me thank someone for his and his crew for a job well done. They are back on your radio tomorrow at the same time. Uh, since I'm a very fair person, I want to thank my colleagues who have in advance who are steering the ship, um, you know, despite the glitches that you've just experienced a second ago. I sincerely apologize for that. You know, technology has its own mind. Just when you think you've got your ducks in a row, uh, boom, something like this happened. But having said that, I, I think my colleagues have got it under control. We are uh, proceeding uh, with full steam. But most importantly, let me welcome uh, the listener of the show and once again express my sincerest gratitude for your unwavering support in the battle for the soul of the country. If you have just joined me for the, if you have just joined us for the first time, welcome aboard. This is Beyond Governance at 101.9 High FM, and my name is Nimrotimele, and and thanks for your time, as it were. Uh, given your centrality as a listener, uh, please weigh in on our conversation. Our SMS line is three four five one nine, and the Telegram is oh six oh six one eight nine five one zero nine five. And of course, my my uh, my email address is nimrod at high Any of this platform is most welcome as you express your views. Um, you know, as we proceed forward, you know. I have always maintained that government and leadership in general should not lose sight on eminent dangers posed by unemployment rates, especially among youth. The states issued by South African, uh, the, the state issued by uh, states SA are quite staggering. We've got whooping eight million uh, of eight million people who are without jobs, and a majority of this. The last time I checked, we had about seventy percent of the 8 million or so unemployed uh, people are, are, are youth. 70% of that are youth. That on its own is a recipe for disaster. We always contend that if government is not addressing these challenges of, of epidemic proportion, how do we how do you expect a stable democracy where the rule of law uh, reigns supreme? 
It is simple, in my view, it is simply a wishful thinking to even comprehend a thriving economy under these circumstances. I don't think many people realize how long it's going to take to restore investment confidence, which is desperately needed to create jobs. That kind of environment is a critical success condition for any administration, let alone that of uh, Salvador Maposa, to try and restore confidence. Before inviting my guest tonight, I just wanted to reflect on the uh, quick one, an appeal by Jacob Zuma's foundation, where in his asking for donation from, you know, for his legal costs that are mounting daily. What do you make of this request? Out of curiosity, would you donate uh, money towards his local cost? On what basis would you do that? And just paying devil's arcade, given the trust uh, deficit, uh, which we all suffer, you know, uh, at this point in time, is there a guarantee that the money that you would donate for his legal cost, assume you will donate uh, for his legal cost, you get a sense that that money will be used uh, in, in, in accordance to the actual plans. It will be interesting to hear from you on this very particular issue. Our SMS line is 34519. Telegram is 061-895-1095. Um, and we proceed uh, on that note. I, I, I suppose one of the biggest issues as we are reading the aftermath of the, 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 the looting and so on and so forth, we have learned that. Uh, you know, we we have lost close to 150 jobs within a space of a month or month or two, which has brought the total figure of unemployment rate in South Africa to a whopping 43 percent, and still counting. And clearly, this is a leadership crisis, a leadership challenge, depending on your perspective. In making sense of these uh, very important issues, I'm joined online. I'm joined uh, by the Deputy President uh, of the United Democratic Fum- uh, Movement, uh, Mr. Ngabamuzi Kwankwa, who is also a member of parliament. I'm also joined by the, uh, by the Director of uh, uh, you know, Knowledge Shankar's group, Mr. Justice Ndaba, who's not a stranger to the show, for we have had him you know, uh, for, for a few times. Without any waste of time, uh, gentlemen, uh, let me take this opportunity to welcome you. Mr. Kwankwa, you're most welcome, and thank you for gracing the airways once again. Uh, thank you, Doug, and thank you for the invitation. Good, good evening to the listeners at home. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Mr. Ndaba, good evening to you, sir, to, to you too. Uh, thank you so much, Doc. Um, good evening, and good evening to your listeners and to my colleagues. Thank you very much. Uh, the very first question I'm going to pose to our, um, you know, uh, Member of Parliament, uh, in the name of Mr. Ngabamzi Kwankwa. We have seen recently, uh, that I think two, three weeks ago, the president, uh, suddenly heeded a call to redefine or reshuffle the cabinet. And we have seen in some instances how the argument of centralization of certain powers within the presidency, uh, I'm referring to the intelligent, uh, fraternity as it were. Um, first and foremost, could you just give us a perspective more broadly on the issue of the cabinet reshuffling from your perspective as UDM? Well, uh, thank you very much, Doc, once again. If you look at the cabinet of uh, uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa, it's full of uh, a lot of driftwood or dead wood, if you like. 
and uh, leaders that uh, at some point made a meaningful contribution to our young democracy, but who appear to be tired, who appear to go through the motions or to do their work in a very lethargic fashion. If you talk about a cabinet reshuffle, for instance, let's talk about in the current context where there were there were riots in the in the east in the rather in Gauteng and parts of KZN, and uh, which resulted in a number of challenges. You should have targeted the sector specifically that were directly involved in that, meaning the security cluster. Uh, I, I cannot we cannot understand as a party, for example, how some of the ministers in the security cluster instead of being fired for their incompetence and inability to do their jobs properly, others were either redeployed. And the other one, for example, even if you look at the Minister of Defence, was redeployed to the National Assembly, which is Parliament. Our view was that all the ministers in the security cluster should have been held accountable for that and should have been shuffled out of the cabinet because you were recalled that even at the time when this was happening, the riots were taking place, the Minister of Police was conspicuous with his absence. There was no communication from the police. Ordinary members of subs were battling on the ground. There was no proper strategy. It also seems that there was no proper intelligence gathered at the time. But you also must blame the leadership, the poor leadership of President Sir Ramaphosa. Surely, they should have been able to anticipate that since former President Zuma was in contempt of court, that some sanction was going to be imposed by the court system or the judiciary on President Zuma, and that they needed to prepare proactively for that process. I want to give an example. I think there was a time when Advocate Vusipikoli had a warrant of arrest for Jackie Selemi. I do not condone the steps and the strategies taken by former President Becky, but all that he did, one of the things he said which made sense at the time was that he needed a bit of time to be able to consider the impact and the gravity of the step that was under being undertaken on the stability of the security cluster and how that would affect the country. It seems as if President Zuma's arrest happened at the time when even the president was not ready for that process. The whole security cluster was not ready, even as threats were being made on a daily basis. You should. In fact, what South Africa needs now is young people in the cabinet, fresh ideas, fresh minds, people who are energetic. uh, Because even the jargon that you hear, even the statements that come out of government, they sound stale and hard. There's nothing nothing new or imaginative. And all of the senior citizens who are deployed there, they continue with this uh, principle of gerontocracy, the ANC. They happen at the time when, as you quite correctly pointed out in your introductory remarks, where we have a 70% youth unemployment rate, where all the macroeconomic policies and policies of government have not been able to address the socioeconomic challenges of the country. It needs new ideas, a new way of thinking, a new approach to doing things. We can't have the same people and continue doing the same things and expect a different outcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for that insight, which uh, obviously gives us a, a clear picture from where you are sitting as the uh, as the party. Uh, you have made reference to the need to bring young blood into the administration of the current government, of which, in your view, the president seems to have missed that opportunity by by recycling some of the 
uh, using your own words, uh, some of the dead wood of the ministers who are uh, who are now uh, senior citizens, who are not actually senior citizens, who are not providing value um, in the current administration. What what in your assessment? What accounts for perpetuation of these ministers, which in your view are no longer adding value to the current um, unemployment uh, crisis in the country? It seems from one point, if I were to be a political analyst talk for one second, the ANC does not seem to have a proper succession plan in place, right? They have not prepared, in my view, and in my view now, the second layer of leadership for uh, senior strategic leadership positions in government. The second aspect of it, in my view, would have to be the political side of things where the president deploys people in order to ensure his political survival rather than to deploy people on the basis that he wants an effective government. For instance, he has fired ministers William Kiza for obvious reasons or he has resigned. Whatever the circumstances, there doesn't matter for us. But the point of the fact of the matter is that many former ministers William Kiza is no longer part of the cabinet. Now, if you were to get rid of uh, Minister Begitele, it means you would be consolidating the case at hand faction of the ANC, probably against President Sil Ramaphosa. So, because as a politician, he has to make other political considerations in arriving at decisions. I accept that. But what should then be the final product? The final product should be able to give us an indication of what the strategic direction of government, the level of seriousness in the work that needs to be undertaken, now, when you look at the deployment, his deployment, the selection of ministers, the put, people has put in strategic positions, you find uh, that it's going to be business as usual, right? So it means the status quo remains, but the rhetoric that comes out of government is one that talks about uh, lofty ideals and objectives that need to be achieved. And yet, if you look at the track record of most of these ministers, they have not even been able to achieve some of the basic objectives and targets that they have set for themselves. The program, the problem we have in South Africa, Doc, is that we have even, uh, people will talk about raising the bar, but I think the bar has been completely removed. There's no standard or benchmark that we use. Everything in South Africa goes, including some of the poor performers in government. All that happens is that if you perform poorly in communication, then you'll be shifted to public enterprises. If you mess up public enterprises, you'll probably be turned into a minister of condolences like Natin Teto and other people who are not entirely effective in government. Thank you very much for that uh, <laughs> intriguing perspective. But let's go back to the issues that you raised. One um, the the inability for a coherent succession planning. The second one being the political will by the president um, to execute a fit for purpose individual. You are saying to us the president is not able to move incompetent ministers purely because of his uh, or the need for political survival, which you understand. Um, but but having said that. The, the the elephant in the room, it's not about the, the ruling party as such. To what extent do you think the ruling party has lost the plot insofar as the 43% or more unemployment rate that is currently in, uh, taking place in the country? 
And what is it that we have not learned from the, the failed coup or the, the current, the, the previous insertion, which is likely to happen if the status quo continues? You see, Doc, the danger of us talking about, you know, when you talk, you can't talk about rule of law to people who are hungry and talk about rule of law to people who feel excluded from the economic mainstream of the country. Then if we talk about respecting rule of law, they are going to continue to perceive it as a pact between the middle class and the middle class that wants to continue to exclude them from the economic mainstream. Part of what happened in the looting process, that's the point I'm trying to drive home, is that, yes, there was legitimate political grievance on the part of, say, President Zuma and, and, and his faction in the ANC. Firstly, there was poor political management of that political grievance, whether legitimate or not. President Sir Ramaphosa is the president even of the troublemakers, even of those who are misbehaving. He's not a president of a specific faction of the ANC. So meaning at a political level, that should have been managed. The second issue is that there were then instances where people took advantage of that political grievance uh, because they know that there are other deep-seated socioeconomic challenges facing the country. They all, need, all they needed to do was to light a match, and which is what happened. And then every every part of the of KZN and parts of Gauteng caught fire. Why? Because of <clears throat> the levels of poverty that exist in the country that have not been addressed in a coordinated way by government. It's not going to help, for example, to, to give handouts to our people in the form of 350 rands. We were saying as a party, as the President Ramaphosa was addressing, talking about these bailouts, saying there's all of a sudden money that can be used towards uh, helping the companies, uh, the businesses, who's, who's, who, the companies whose businesses were looted and destroyed in case at hand. We said if, even before the president made an announcement of 350 rands, then we said he is going to try and appease the poor, right? By giving them small change, 350 rands and extend it to next year. Where there is no nothing concrete in terms of economic interventions that are going to help people and mainstream them economically. But the other issue where we've missed an opportunity from where we're sitting is that we've always said that there is a need for us to now have a an economic indaba because we've had an, a political indaba. We can't continue like this where the policies that we've adopted from an economic point of view continue to marginalize the poor. If we continue to marginalize the poor, continue as, as business as usual, even though you have 70% of the youth unemployed and you expect that you are not going to have instability and you expect that people, when there's a, there, there are a few instances of lawlessness, they are not going to try and take advantage of that in order for them to be able to put food on the table. The most, the most painful thing for us as, uh, as we were watching the scenes playing themselves out in KZN and Gauteng. You know, I have no uh, I have no sympathy for those who went there because they wanted to steal TVs and so on. But there were a few number of instances where people go, went there and they took food because they have no food at home. There was even a young man from KZN who touched us a great deal as we were following those, those things, who said all that he stole was food for his children, for his young children and, and nephews. And he said, children are hungry, what do you expect me to do? 
And others who said, we did not participate in this in order to destroy infrastructure is because we want to be able to put food on the table. We are hungry. The COVID situation has made life worse for us. And government is not helping us. But you also have, as I conclude, Doc, the other issue where it's easy for law enforcement agencies to go into shacks, victimize our people, uh, go and say they are going to confiscate goods because they were stolen, especially food. You go and burn the food up or throw it away in the sea of poverty and hunger in our country. But you can't touch the people who looted the country of uh, half a trillion rands over the past 10 years or so. You don't touch them. The processes, the, the wheels of justice are moving very slowly, even in instances where there are uh, allegations that are clear that can be followed up, especially in light of the state capture. The state does not seem, the state apparatus does not seem to move swiftly to deal with those issues. But when it's the poor, because we hate the poor, we don't like the poor, we ill-treat the poor, right? We can victimize them. And then we go and then we say we are going to confiscate goods. In some of the instances, we received complaints from our people on the ground saying the, the army and the police, they even if you had a TV that you bought last week on item, who keeps receipts of some of the items you bought? As long as it looked brand new to them, it was looted. It was, it was a, a proceed of crime. So even that confiscation process was not scientific. If you do not have a receipt of something that looked brand new in your shack because you're poor, you can't afford it, then it's taken away from you. And then you must bring the receipt. If you can't bring the receipt because the shop is, loot, the shop is looted and has been broken down, then it means that item is going to be destroyed. It can't happen like that. No, no I, I, I particularly like the last bit that you, um, that you sort of highlighted. The fact that there's this perception that the law enforcement agencies are victimizing the poor by confiscating food, uh, food that is supposedly been stolen as well as appliances and so on and so forth. I'm going to bring in Justice Indaba here for him just to give us his view based on your position and, and personally give us a sense whether this notion of victimization it is just an, an issue or it is widespread. Justice, can you just give us a perspective on that very note, which I find troubling, that there's this perception that poor have been victimized and, and, you know, and so on and so forth. Yes, thank you so much, Doc. Um, you know, it's difficult to come in after a speaker has been so eloquent in terms of capturing the thoughts and the minds uh, especially those that I had. Um, I think uh, Mr. Kongwa seemed to have captured what I was thinking. Um, we know right now that in terms of uh, goods that were confiscated, half the time, even if you were to go back to the warehousing uh, companies that had the goods, even those, they had to have, you have to have a record of some sort because many of the goods would, would have a, a serial number or something like that until such time that you could prove that that, those goods belong to you. The, 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 the law enforcement said really no, um, leg to stand on to prove because you know, in terms of civil rights and uh, criminal rights, the, there has to be a, a, a proof beyond reasonable doubt. And in this instance, 
clearly, uh, Minister Kwele and his group most probably just went for soft targets. And in that perspective, merely to appease um, us citizens to as if something was being done, because we know that, as my colleague has indicated, checks would be easy targets. Because uh, at the end of the day, even if you have confiscated those goods, unless you can trace them back to the owners, ultimately you will have to destroy them. Because, I mean, what would the owner have to show that those goods belong to them? So it was a futile exercise to start with and not coordinated. It was meant to appease. So I, I fully agree with my colleague on that, on that score and in, in response to your question. Let me, let me just play devil's advocate. We have laws in the country that are supposed to be followed. And the, the victims of the lootings, I'm referring to the shop owners, warehousing, who have lost, and some of them did not have insurance. From yeah. a law point of view, surely you are expected to be seen to be addressing the mishap by confiscating those um, items that were stolen. Surely you cannot expect the administration to sit back and say, because we don't have the ledger, we don't have insight as to what item was stolen from which shop and from which shop from which shop. The fact that the honest depends on the state to, to prove that this item was stolen from that or that. Surely we not expect the law enforcement agencies to sit by when so much has happened, particularly when the impact is, is, is addressed, is impacting negatively on the economy. Well, even in a circumstance of looting or of riot, that does not negate the law enforcement from um, embarking on investigation in all aspects, because uh, that's the point. Uh, my colleague mentioned the fact that they simply walked into shirks as, a, as an example and uh, go into a shirk and say, look, um, people who are looting went in here, where are your things? And then they look around in your shirk. If they identify something that looks suspicious, it gets, it gets taken away. There is nothing wrong if any um, time that the law enforcement went into a place, that if that was an outcome of an investigation, and then the investigation indicates that goods were taken and they were taken to that particular shed, there there's nothing wrong with that because then it's subjected to a process of some sort. It is not about just going at the top of the street, taking all, uh, going house to house in that street and then trying to identify what was taken along, uh, uh, what you think was looted and not. Because how do you identify, as, as an example, a 10 kilo, a 10 kg, um, a, a maize meal bag that uh, you didn't buy it? How do you identify that? No, no, I hear, I hear you, I hear. You. But perhaps maybe let's 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 go, let's get to more uh, substantive issues around the arrest of the instigators. I want to bring uh, Mr. Kwanko back again uh, on what progress is perceived to have been made in arresting the perpetrators. For we all know that 
these kinds of turmoil and so-called uprising was clearly coordinated. Surely, in as much as the intelligence was found wanting, we should by now have records of people that were arrested. Do we have any insight, Mr. Kwankwa, on the brains behind the instigation or the instigators? Do we have records of those that were behind this thing? As usual, Doc, uh, as usual, government in, in, in times like this, they always go for soft targets. Uh, in my view, I had the back and forth saying some of the people were part of the intelligence at some point, but nothing concrete has come forward. In our view, people like, uh, I think, is it Duduzile Zuma, Duduzale Zuma's uh, twin sister or something like that? Some of them were family members. Some of them are senior leaders of the ANCs. They instigated and incited violence before President Zuma was arrested. If you remember correctly, the gatherings that were taking place in Gandhi. Apart from those who coordinated the, the, the activities of massive looting, let me rather not say massive looting, but sabotage here and there. But there were clear political leaders of the ANC who incited the violence, who started, who were stoking this thing long before President Zuma was arrested. Why have they not been held to account for all the public utterances that they made? Before you come out, you come to people who probably coordinated it at a, at, a, at a ground level. But you also had a number of people who incited these things, who encouraged them using social network platforms. I have not had, unless I, unless I have not been following the news because I've been busy with list processes, but I have not had anyone uh, who prominent who has been arrested for it. And that's the challenge in South Africa. It goes, uh, it, it goes along the lines of saying, if Doc and Kwangwa do something, we can turn a blind eye because they are middle class. They will probably be able to put together a nice and compelling argument, argument and sound intelligent. But if it's ordinary people, the poor that we should be using our laws to protect, then we're quick to act and to victimize them. And that's the problem. And to answer the question again, justice is quite right to say all that the, the, the state apparatus, the security apparatus was trying to do is public appeasement. Go into a few shakes because where did that, where did that campaign end? They went into a, a few shakes, confiscated eggs and millimill bags that you could not prove. Doc, I want to make an example. I bought groceries a couple of days ago and I got paid. But if the law enforcement agencies were to come to my house, I don't have a single receipt for everything that I've bought here. So mm. if I'd been in that area, they'd probably end up confiscating all the goods I've bought because they come from some or other shopping center around here. It must be indeed, in saying that, I'm trying to agree with saying that it must be an outcome of an investigation. And then once you have that investigation, you follow a systematic process of arriving at a process where you ultimately end up having to confiscate goods. Meaning law, the law must also apply to those that seem to have violated because they are suspects. They are innocent until proven guilty. And you must follow the legal process to prove that indeed they are guilty of what has been alleged against them. And that's the problem. We can short circuit processes when we deal with our our people and the poor in particular. But when we deal with middle class people who are very careful about their rights, we are careful not to, to infringe their rights because we know they can take us and challenge us to court. And that's the crux of the problem. Up until those who publicly instigated and incited the violence are held to account, 
I want to put it to you that everything else that has happened so far is as justice has put it, public appeasement is nothing other than public appeasement. Well, if you've just joined us, we are joined by the Deputy President of United Democratic, uh, United Democratic Movement, Mr. Nkwankwa, by also by Unatim Tonint, whom I'll just give you an opportunity in a short while, as well as Justice Nabu, who's a director of Knowledge Inkers. Um, but here's another thing. Can I maybe just bring Unati very quickly? Uh, Mr. Mtonensi, we've got the member of parliament in the name of UDM who sits in parliament to sit and adjudicate and ask difficult questions of accountability to the ruling party. From where you're sitting as an ordinary citizen, what is missing from an accountability point of view? We've got a member of parliament in our midst tonight and he shared the frustration, but in your view, what do you think is missing? Thank you so much, and, and greetings and evenings to the Deputy President of UTM and Mr. Ndab, and you, Doc. Um, you know, my, my distant perspective is that the entire system is broken, and the system has been for right. a long time being undermined by the ruling party in its ways and the manner in which it conducts itself. I mean, if you produce a list of people that must go to parliament who come from the same party, and that list is prepared by the same executive of the same party, out of that list, you then divide people into two groups with the intention that the one group must make the other group accountable from the same political party. That system has shown that it's not working. For as long as the ruling party is both the majority and also has the right to form the executive, it's just a waste of time, to be honest with you, to have an expectation that there's going to be accountability. So the system, by design and and by experience, and even by unintended consequences, is broken. Let me give a very small, short uh, thing that surprised me a few weeks ago. Former President Tabumbek, in an effort to demonstrate how the ANC was loved and supported in Zambia, makes a very short story of how one of their members, which I assume is a senior member of the ANC, was found by the Zambian police to have been involved in drug smuggling and diamonds. The Zambian police go and tell the ANC that there's this person we're going to arrest. The best thing that you must do is that this person, you must take him out of the country. Because if you don't, we're going to arrest this person. And I think sincerely, President Big is trying to demonstrate that these people went to extra lengths to try and support us. But inadvertently, what is demonstrating is that there's been a long culture of accountability, or sorry, of a lack of accountability when people have done wrongdoing. That comes from all the way in the 80s in exile, where if somebody does something wrong, because maybe for some reason there's a bigger picture here, there is no way of ensuring that that individual who is clearly involved in other activities other than the best interests of forwarding the liberation of the people of South Africa is involved in no accountability. 
it's exactly the same that has been happening now in this country. There is no accountability. I cannot understand how a person can be elected to head the same institution that is investigating that person. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. You, it's like it's like somebody must is is appointed as as a general or, or lieutenant general very from the Western Cape is appointed to be the head of the detectives when the police are investigating him. It's 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 I don't I don't understand that. Now that is a clear sign of a, not only a lack of accountability but a disdain of how the elected representative treats the electorate. And the electorate now must wait until 2024 to deal with this matter. Okay, on, on the very same point, um, Unati, which is critical, I want to have a follow-up with Mr. Kwankwa um, on his perception about the system, the extent to which the system is flawed. Um, as a member of parliament, we have you know, voted the politicians to be in power so that the you know, issue of accountability Reign supreme. What is missing from Mr. Kwaka's point of view? What is missing in you terms know, of accountability? Doc, if there were elections tomorrow, I would vote for Unati. And if we were contesting elections, because it's quite correct in saying that the system has completely collapsed. It's broken. It needs a complete overall. I want to give an example on this question of accountability. You have the so-called National Command Council that takes decisions every now and then to close the country down and open up their countries that is not accountable to any institution in the country, right? Mm. Uh, You have a president that continues to hold uh, PR sessions where he tells us that now you are going to close the, uh, say, alcohol sales on a regular basis, but who only appears once per quarter to parliament, and often when he does, he does not deal with any questions that have to do with the conduct and the and the work of the National Command Council, together with his PR stance where he addresses us on a regular basis about some or other issue. We are not in the... In, the president is not directly elected, so he is supposed uh, in this parliamentary system to account, including the National Command Council to parliament. When the National Command Council structure was established, we tried uh, in vain as the chief of forum to say there must be some form of accountability where parliament plays the roles because we are the representatives of the people. But even parliament as it is structured currently, these, these different arms of the state, you have an executive that goes out of its way, including the governing party, to subvert checks and balances on the executive. I want to tell you, Doc, now as I'm speaking to you, all opposition parties are not even happy with the current arrangement where South Africa is back at work, but Parliament continues to hold the executive and government departments uh, to account via virtual platforms which are not effective 90% of the time. In the majority of instances, even departments that come to appear before us, the minute you start asking them difficult questions, then they have connectivity problems. They promise to send you written responses to some of the questions you've asked, and they never do, and no one holds them to account for that. You make recommendations that they never implement. Mr. Kwanko, I'm going to interject you there. Did you just say when you ask him difficult questions, suddenly people have connectivity challenges? No, 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 yes. Yes, Doc. I even complained about it as far back as last year to say, 
when you have to make your presentations, tell us they always paint a rosy picture. Wait until uh, difficult questions are being asked. Then they have connectivity issues. <laughs> or the one who's supposed to answer the question is not online. We know that that is their way of running away from difficult questions. And they always promise to reply back in writing, which they never do. Sometimes even when you get those responses, they are very vague. Now, that lessens the effectiveness of parliament, but it also undermines the role of parliament. You make recommendations in reports that are never, never implemented or taken into account by government departments and members of the executives. And there are no sanctions for those things. Right, so what we do now is the talk show, people come and appear before us. I mean, some of the challenges, Doc, which face uh, different departments, especially the SOEs, are issues that we first spoke about in 2013 from my side. When I first became a member of parliament, eight years later, we're still harping on the same issues. And very few of those issues have been implemented. Look at the SABC. We had an inquiry which was televised and publicized widely. There were recommendations which were made. We got rid of Claudi Mutsoneng. But only probably about 10% of those recommendations were implemented. And there's no accountability for that issue. Right? Ministers can, when they feel like it, answer questions. Like Mbalula, I think he prefers to talk more on Twitter than to engage his colleagues in Parliament about serious matters. It's that challenge. Now, once you have that system which has broken down, you have the judiciary on the other hand, that is then in the majority of instances, it acts like the CCMA of politicians who are not able to resolve their disputes, is not able to focus on other issues and administer justice for ordinary people. It's always entangled in the factional battles of political parties, predominantly and preeminently the ANC, and the executive they are doing as they please. And Parliament is just going through the motions as if things aren't going wrong because the ANC does not like accountability. I tell you what, we are we definitely going to have a follow-up with you, Mr. Kwankwa, on the, the the infrastructure of Parliament and the extent to which Parliament operates and how Parliament enforces um, compliance and accountability. We're going to have to leave it here. Perhaps maybe as we wrap up, we've got literally three minutes. Um, Justice, can I just bring you in here, literally on the way forward with these cars to these very complex issues? Literally, you've got um, 30 seconds, and after that, I will bring in Unati, literally 30 seconds, and lastly, I will get Mr. Kwanka to wrap up, for we literally have four, uh, less than four minutes to, to complete. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, Doc, I think personally my my view is that we have a president that is caught up in CR22, which is his next term. And as a result, whatever decision that is uh, focused on right now, um, even when personally might know that the solution could be different, but because he has to defend his second term, he has to play around in terms of that. Now, that affects the whole country. I mean, the, one of our problems that you started with is the statistics that were released today about uh, the high number of uh, unemployment in this country, the majority of which is youth. That is a ticking time bomb. The looting is an indicator of that because many of the people that were there, many were youth. So it is continuing, and unless it is arrested,
um, and and unless we focus we focus seriously on 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 recovery of the economy, we're not going to win this battle. And I mean, as we speak, we we know that uh, even government keeps talking about s- small businesses, and yet they don't support us, they don't pay us, they don't pay us in time, and yet on a PR exercise they continue to propagate that no, they are in support of SMMEs. I mean, really. You know, that the point is uh, on we don't note, have political I'm, will. I'm going to just, on that note, because we ran, we run out of time, you're raising a very interesting point. Onati, your concluding remark before I give Mr. Kwankwa the final word. Literally uh, 40 seconds, Mr. Onati. Thank you so on much. The, on the way forward, on the way forward. Yeah, I I think really we must we must use the the, the current process of of um, changing the electoral act as a start to try and make from fundamental reforms on how the whole administration of our country is uh, is 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 done. And I think that's the opportunity that we must fight for, and that's the opportunity that uh, we must we must use that we have. But I think we must also be courageous to not to stand by when things like appointment of the speaker, as it has happened, happen. We must look for other ways to fight such uh, incidents and ensure that those incidents do not continue. I mean, thank you, thank you so much. Shosh. Thank you, thank you. Uh, we will run out of time. Mr. Nkoka, your last word on the way forward. There are two proposals on we the table. The ca- we must review the current, current political system, Doc, <laughs> and make sure that we have politicians who are going to be directly represented so that they can be accountable to constituencies rather than political parties. The second issue is that we really do need an economic endeavor. We also need to get rid of all these deadwood and senior leaders who are leading us to nowhere. Well, there we go. That was an um, interesting perspective shared by our esteemed colleagues tonight. We have had the Deputy President of the UDM, Mr. Uh, Mkwankwa, as well as Unatim Tonensi, who is a director at Namahaya Engineering, uh, joined along the same line by Justice Ndaba, who is at Nolanchesa's group. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your contribution. We, ser- we certainly enjoyed it. I hope the listeners certainly derive some insight on your contributions tonight. I thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.